information contained herein should not be considered investment advice. All investments have risks. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon without first consulting your personal financial, tax, and legal advisors. The Benchmark Podcast is affiliated with BCS Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to The Benchmark, a podcast by the team at BCS Wealth Management. My name is Philip Bachman. I also go by my initials PB. Joining me are Nick Clay and Scott Lynn. The three of us have the pleasure of discussing in this episode the topic of behavioral finance. Behavioral finance is basically a field of study that combines both psychology and economics. It has an incredibly important role in financial planning because it helps us to identify ways that a financial plan can sometimes be derailed by our own faulty thinking and faulty reasoning. And uh, for that reason, we want to identify these traits of behavioral finance that can help us stay true to our long-term financial plan, especially as it relates to investment management. Behavioral finance studies and explains errors and faulty thinking that people can often make, and it identifies ways to help combat those errors and faulty thinking. So to frame the conversation that we're about to have, we probably ought to distinguish between conventional finance or classic economics, you might hear it be called, and the topic of this episode, which is behavioral finance. So yeah, let's talk about conventional finance, I guess, to, to kind of get started before we turn, you know, dive into what behavioral finance and, and what the study of that really looks like. So, you know, what conventional finance tells us is that, you know, that we're, we're swayed or, or we make our decisions really without any emotion attached to those decisions. Um, you know, it assumes that people hold uh, well-diversified, efficient portfolios. Uh, it assumes that you know, that people incorporate all the available information that they have to them. And, and I think that assumes that we have all, you know, all the information that we need to make a, a good decision, which often isn't the case. And then on top of that, it assumes that we process, you know, process that information efficiently and, and correctly to be able to make, uh, you know, uh, the, the most efficient decision, which, which isn't always the case either. Um, you know, conventional finance, I think it ignores how real people make real decisions. Yeah. You know, and, and it assumes, I think, participants in, you know, in the market are, are rational and, and they always make rational decisions. We know, obviously, that, that humans are emotional beings and, and they don't always make the most rational decisions. And I think that kind of leads into a discussion about what behavioral finance is. Yeah, I think, uh, excuse me, when we're talking about decision making in, in anything in life, uh, you know, it, it's rare that our emotions aren't involved with those decisions. And so... You know, it would be uh, a little naive to think that investment decisions were, uh, you know, don't, don't subscribe to that same theory. But, you know, that's what we're going to talk about is how potentially these biases and, and maybe misperceptions can uh, give us the wrong idea or paint the wrong picture or, uh, you know, anchor us to a certain thing in the past that at the end of the day uh, can, you know, when managed appropriately can can really enhance our uh, investment experience, but it can also 
you know, if we're not being aware of these, you know, biases and misperceptions and our emotions and, you know, truly coming from a place that is as close to conventional finance as possible, then we could get into trouble with some things. Yeah. So to sum up what you just said, Nick, basically behavioral finance as a field of study is based on the premise that people tend to make errors. And uh, I can say that's true for myself even. Uh, We all know people that make errors in judgment, errors in uh, rational thinking or what we believe we are, uh, in cases when we do believe we're acting rationally but maybe are not. And and so that's the, the, the context of this conversation. Academic studies even have shown that 95% of us use heuristics or mental shortcuts, such as a rule of thumb, an educated guess, or even just an intuitive judgment like telling ourselves, oh, this or that feels right uh, to make complex decisions. And this matters when we're talking about investment management and financial planning, because when we make decisions that are so important, especially with money, and we're relying on these mental shortcuts or heuristics, uh, sometimes we don't make the optimal decision that we can, and there's a true cost to that over time, especially with uh, relation to investments. So let's try to quantify the cost of what I'm going to call bad behavior. It's not bad behavior so much as faulty thinking and faulty reasoning. Uh, So here's just some some interesting historic uh, statistics about investments. We're looking at a chart here that has some 20-year average return numbers. Uh, This is for the year ended 2017. So the 20 years leading up through 2017, uh, the uh, S&P 500 stock index returned an average of 7.2% for those particular 20 years. But the average uh, stock mutual fund investor only earned 5.3% annually. So there's a behavior gap there. There's a difference between what the average equity fund investor earned during those 20 years and what the index or what the market returned. And uh, it's nearly 2% per year. That's what we call the behavior gap because it represents the, the, the sort of the faulty actions or the inability of an investor to stay true to perhaps a long-term plan that they might have and it really shows a handicap to the investor relative to the index by itself. There's another chart that we're looking at, which is more recent. This is 20 years ending in 2021. This one's a resource that we enjoy looking at that JP Morgan provides. And in this one, we're looking at a 60-40 balanced portfolio. And for those 20 years, that this 60-40 average Uh, excuse me, portfolio did average 7.4% annually, but the average investor overall only achieved 3.6% annually. Uh, Not that they were necessarily investing, you know, towards that 60-40 target, but nonetheless, their data shows that the average investor, according to retail mutual fund flows, only ended up with 3.6%. So again, we're looking at a handicap there uh, by this behavior gap. And, you know, the, the, there's real numbers at play, real dollars at play, not just uh, theoretical. Yeah, so I think what we're finding is 
you know, that the results, you know, we preach long-term investing and, and that's kind of our belief and it works. Uh, but I think what we're finding is how crucial and important it is that your actual results long-term are, you know, more dependent upon your investor behavior than, you know, the particular investment you're using. And so when we I always like to look at things in real dollars, you know, to kind of quantify it a little bit. So if we say, you know, to keep things uh, numbers round, uh, you know, if you take $100,000 and we just use those numbers that PB just talked about. So uh, if you had a well diversified uh, portfolio that's very balanced, which is extremely common uh, for a lot of our clients and investors, uh, you had that $100,000 and you just uh, let it work for uh, you know, 20 years, which is a long, long period of time, but that's where this data is going. Uh, you know, you're going to have close to a half a million dollars at the end of the day. So that hundred thousand turns into 400 and, uh, round up to 417,000 versus, you know, the average investor, what PB was talking about was their returns were 3.6% per year. Uh, you know, obviously that's, you know, a little less than half, but that same $100,000 comes out to 203000 uh, rounding up just a little bit. So a big difference. I mean, the returns are, uh, you know, over a 20-year period, uh, you know, that hopefully emphasizes how dramatic just poor investor behavior uh, or, you know, kind of not subscribing to these emotional and cognitive biases that we're going to talk about can really uh, impact your long-term results. Yeah. So, I mean, this just like Nick mentioned, this behavior gap can be a, a huge issue, you know, when, you know, when you're investing, when you're trying to plan for whatever goal it is you're trying to achieve. So what goal, you know, what goes into these uh, or this behavior gap? Um, you know, I think it goes a lot towards, you know, people's biases and then and then also their emotions. Also, you know, people tend to have a tendency to want to avoid further pain by selling investments when when it's hard to own them. You know, you think back to, to last year to 2022 you know, market was pretty volatile and, and, and it was, you know, it was a pretty tough time to, to own equities, um, you know, re relying on past results to predict future income or to uh, predict future outcomes as well. People have a, have a tendency to kind of look backwards to, to try to predict what's going to happen in the future. That's not uh, not necessarily always, always reliable. And then, you know, a sense of overconfidence, too. You know, we tend to might think that or tend to think that we might be able to, to outperform what the market uh, you know, just has available for us, you know, that, that we, we can pick what's going to, you know, um, outperform the S&P 500 or, or, you know, whatever it is that uh, that we're kind of using as a as a benchmark. So, you know, a couple things that I've heard, you know, two emotions I've heard that, that drive the market a lot is, is fear and greed, you know, the fear of losing, but then the greed to, you know, uh, to, to gain, to outperform, to, to get more, that fear of missing out, I think, comes into to play. Uh, a lot. And PB, I think you're going to kind of talk about now the sort of the roots of, of the, you know, behavioral finance and, and where this study kind of first came about. And, and, be right, and before sure. you do, I just want to make a comment, yeah, you know, yeah. like this, this always goes both ways. So Scott, you're talking about like selling investments, you know, because it, it gets too uncomfortable. And I think uh, there's, there's the other side of that is the person that refuses to sell because they don't want to take the loss, you know? And so I don't know that either one of those sides of the coin are right, but they, they, they're both examples in the same situation of how, you know, our emotions can come into play when making investment decisions. And we don't necessarily know which side is right, but, um, you know, 
if, if two people can agree to two totally different, you know, stances with whatever this investment is, what is somebody's wrong, right? And so right, we're trying sure. to kind of find that middle ground there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but you, thank you, Scott, because you did do a good job giving a few examples of what contributes to the so-called behavior gap, which is the underperformance by the average investor compared to an index. And, uh, and so ultimately, it's really just comes down to, in one form or another, some kind of an emotional reaction that's that's hindering their performance or faulty reasoning about an investment uh, that hinders their performance. Uh, so thank you. Uh, yeah, what we'd like to do at this moment is talk about where this field of study really originated from. Behavioral finance has its roots in psychology, specifically experimental psychology. I believe, I believe, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so I think when we think about psychology and how it relates to, to this particular field, um, you know, we're, we're talking about cognitive biases uh, and emotional biases. So these are really, when we think about behavioral finance and then we kind of come down from there just a little bit, we can start to differentiate certain behavioral um, you know, characteristics. And some of these are cognitive. And so what I mean by that is, you know, a, a certain line of thinking, uh, like uh, the rules of thumb we talked about, mental shortcuts. Um, you know, uh, I think it's more of a, uh, well, it's cognitive. It's, it's, a, it's a neurological uh, type bias. And, and then the emotional biases, which is also, you know, have to do with a different part of the brain. But, you know, as the name suggests, we're talking about, you know, impulses and fear and greed and things like that, uh, intuition, uh, things where our decisions are really distorted by our cognition. And so, um, you know, back to what I was originally talking about before, I mean, I think when we're making decisions, you know, more often than not, our, our emotions are at play. And so I think that's uh, pretty powerful in the world of, uh, of investing. But there, there also is just these cognitive biases that are not necessarily emotional, but it's kind of like, hey, this is what I've always known, or this is what I've been taught, or this is what I've experienced, and I'm clinging to those things, um, you know, from from a cognitive standpoint. So, uh, you know, I think maybe what we can do is talk a little bit more, maybe, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of these biases, and, and some of them are a lot more prevalent than others, but maybe we can talk about some of the more prevalent ones that we've experienced or that we've seen, uh, you know, when working with our clients. Uh, you know, maybe start with cognitive biases. Yeah. So, you know, one cognitive bias that, you know, that you can see a lot is is confirmation bias. And, you know, really what that is, is interpreting some kind of information as confirmation of something that you already believe. Um, you know, I think this helps promote self-confidence. If you come across some information that, you know, confirms what you already believe, then obviously that's going to make you feel a little bit better about yourself, right? Um, I think that can relieve stress as well. You know, when, when you have something confirmed that you already believe, you know, and I think that helps re- relieve some stress. You know, some examples of this, I think probably the most obvious one is, is someone that, you know, watches a political analyst or a certain, you know, TV channel that, that kind of already confirms what your political views are. That's, that's probably one of the more obvious confirmation biases. From an investment standpoint, it may be just, you know, reading certain market analysis or, you know, analysis on the stock that you already own, you know, that uh, that, that shows a buy side, um, you know, bias toward towards that stock. Um, so, yeah, confirmation bias is, is one and, and anchoring. I know, PB, you think you're going to touch mm-hmm. on kind of what anchoring is. Sure. We'll talk about anchoring. Back to confirmation bias. 
it really just reinforces what a person already thinks they know, but it doesn't really discuss how accurate information uh, that might be, how accurate of information it could be. So it's reinforcing either a, a, an accurate belief or an inaccurate belief, but the point is it's reinforcing it, and you're just kind of looking for information that confirms what sure. you already want to believe. Yeah, yeah. you're, you're promoting uh, your own self-esteem in a way. Like, right. hey, I, I know this to be true, and I'm going to go find the data that backs that up, and you're not necessarily thinking about, well, maybe I should look at the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we will move on to the, another cognitive bias. This one's called anchoring. Anchoring is basically when we get stuck on a reference point mentally, and we use that reference point for evaluating or estimating the value of something, when in reality, that particular reference point might be irrelevant. Uh, So anchoring is when uh, an investor, for example, to bring it back to investment management, an investor will cling arbitrarily to price points uh, that they're looking at or honing in on, when deciding to buy or sell an investment. Uh, and that price point may just be in their mind. Maybe it's what they paid for it uh, years ago. Maybe it's what they paid for it yesterday. Or maybe it's what uh, someone told them it should be worth. And they're anchoring in on a particular price point for an investment. But in reality, they're maybe focusing too much on that anchor and not really incorporating all other relevant information that could be a driver of value in that investment. Yeah, I'll I'll give you uh, an an unfortunate example to that, uh, just from my own investing experience. So, you know, uh, I'll I'll own this. I bought bought Boeing stock. Um, You know, they they had some problems, I think, with some parts on on their airplanes that, you know, ended in some very unfortunate accidents with their their a couple of flights that they had and so the thing <laughs> sold off from whatever yeah 450 to to 320 and I'm thinking man it's it's Boeing you know there's only a couple really major airlines or major uh, airplane manufacturers in the world you know it'll come back so I bought it you know not not soon after that when it sold off so much and um you know I don't know my price entry was somewhere around 320 I think it was and that was towards the end of 2019 uh, of course, 2020, you know, that sticks out in everybody's head. COVID happened and, you know, that affected airlines, airplane manufacturers, you know, everything, you know, you know, had had a huge impact on those uh, those industries. So, you know, the stock. Well, I mean, nobody was flying. It's, so. you got, that's right. Yeah. So did I sell Boeing? No, of course not. I held it, you know, uh, and it's, uh, you know, still not close to my entry point. But that that entry point, that 320 price level still sticks in my head. All the time, um, but the market doesn't care where I bought that stock at, right? It may or may right. never get back up there. So mm-hmm. you have to analyze it. That it, you know, hey, do I think this stock will outperform, or is it still a good investment from that point today, not from where I bought it at? You know, whatever three years ago, three four years ago. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that you know, but still, that price target still sticks in my head, and I, I tell myself that if and when it gets back to that price point, you know, maybe I'll look at selling it then. But yeah, that that is not the appropriate way to analyze, uh, you know, a, a stock like that. But, but yeah, that's kind of an example of, of anchoring. Yeah. And that, so, so anchoring sometimes and, uh, you know, leads to opportunity cost conversation, you know, you're anchored to a specific investment and Scott, in your case, Boeing stock, but, you know, uh, maybe you were looking through, you know, Boeing colored sunglasses when you were <laughs> watching it, but I mean, you think about it and, and we, you know, I mentioned just opportunity cost because that comes to mind. But you think about well, if we if you make a rational decision without 
you know, anchoring to that specific price or their history or their track record or whatever it may be. And, and you, you sell that and, you know, maybe you make a, a good investment decision, you know, theoretically buy low, sell high, maybe something else is, is really low, maybe a diversified, you know, whatever the NASDAQ or something. And, uh, you know, I think you get rewarded and it's like, what's the opportunity cost of sitting on the sidelines, just anchored to that, you know, specific investment that, uh, eventually, I think we can agree we'll all come back. But what have you missed out on during that time period? Right. You know, the opportunity cost that you've lost. So, And I will say that as part of a well-diversified portfolio. That <laughs> or so, yeah. A small, pre- yeah. a small piece of my overall. A satellite. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, another one that comes to mind that, you know, really we see a lot of these days is recency bias, you know, and that's, uh, you know, short-term experiences or memories are or more influential than things that happen, you know, years ago or that are timeless. And so, uh, you know, maybe this means that an investor believes that, you know, rising markets or a bull market will just continue to gain uh, or that down markets and pessimistic markets uh, or a bear market will continue to fall. We, we, we see that a lot. And, you know, there's a quote, I don't know it off the top of my head. I think it's uh, maybe Franklin Templeton uh, who said it, you know, when you think about, uh, bull markets or rising markets in the stock market where everybody, where, where he would get really, really scared of this bull run is when it just became euphoric. And, and you know, it was like everybody was bought in, everybody believed, Hey, it just is going to keep going. Like that's where, uh, you know, he would, in his investments, he would say, this is where we really need to take a hard look at. Alan Greenspan called that yeah. irrational exuberance. Right? That's right. That's right. 90, so that's yep. right. And so, um, <laughs> You know, and, and even analysts reference those kinds of things. So, um, you know, recency is a cognitive bias that, like I said, favors uh, more recent, hit, you know, events versus historical ones. And so one that really comes to mind for a lot of people these days, and, and especially me, is just the financial crisis or the great financial crisis, uh, you know, 2007, 8 and 9 in that period of time. And so, um, you know, depending on where you were, you know, for, for me, I was a financial advisor, just had been in the business for a couple of years and and we had that experience and it, it really changed, uh, you know, my what I'd always knew of investments in the markets. I mean, I, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't how far is that, you know, is the market going to go up or down? It was how far it was going to go down every single day. And so for, you know, investors or retirees, you know, depending on where you were in that cycle, you know, if you were. Uh, retiring at that point or, you know, five, 10 years out from retirement, like you just have this view that's uh, this is the way things are. I'll I'll never recover or I'm just always going to be conservative or I'm never going to invest in the stock market again. I remember hearing that from a lot of a lot of people was that I don't want anything to do with the stock market. um, And and so that's just placing a lot of, uh, you know, weight on what has happened recently or on the flip side of that is maybe you know, uh, you were just getting into the workforce and you just started investing, you know, on the heels of the great financial crisis. And and here we are in a a period of time that's uh, easy, as they say, you know, low interest rates, trying to stimulate growth and markets were really efficient. And and so you think, uh, you know, (laughs) this is easy, like markets are always going to go up. And so, um, you know, that's just a little bit of context for uh, recency bias. But you know, it's another one of those what we would call cognitive biases. And hindsight is another one that, that comes to mind. PB and I were talking about earlier. Oh, for sure. It's another one called hindsight bias. 
this one is when we often you know hear people say, "Oh, I knew that was going to happen," or "I saw that coming," and uh, isn't it always so true? It's always so easy to say to ourselves, "Oh, I saw this or that," you know, coming down the pike. When in reality, of course, no one knew that it would happen. Uh, you know, financial bubbles are an example of this in our world. Financial bubbles are always subject to hindsight bias after they burst. Uh, or, you know, on the other side of the token, it could be that uh, we have a great bull run and the market does very well. And investors are saying at the end of that good year, yeah, you know, uh, there's so many good reasons why the market did so well. And I saw, you know, I, I could see it coming. I, I knew I just felt like this was going to be a good year. And it was. Uh, so it can go both ways. But hindsight bias is that, uh, uh, you know, sense of 2020 vision uh, after the fact. Yeah. So. Um, I guess if we kind of wrap that, that piece of it up, so that's, we talk about some cognitive biases, but now let's talk about, um, you know, the emotional side of thing or emotional biases. And if you remember, you know, these are biases that stem from, you know, emotional factors like your impulse, the fear, greed, what we talked about or intuition, um, you know, and I, I think they are every bit in play, uh, and sometimes, uh, and more than, you know, some of these cognitive biases. Yeah. So one of those, I think, is familiarity bias, you know, and that's really just kind of sticking to what it, whatever it is you might be familiar with. I think that can provide kind of a sense of comfort, you know, to people. Again, it plays on on those emotions again. You know, it makes me feel comfortable that I just I'm going to invest in what I know, invest in what I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. You know, an example of that is someone that might invest, you know, a large chunk of their assets just solely in their in their company stock. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they only invest in the industry that, that they work in because they know that industry. So obviously, you know, an obvious risk to all that is there's no diversification there. If something happens to your individual corporate stock mm -hmm. or you know, your, your industry as a whole, you know, there's, you're adding a lot, lot more risk to your portfolio probably than, than you need to take. Mm -hmm. Another example of familiarity bias would be uh, not even really considering asset classes or investment types that you don't already know about. So if you only, if you only think that there is, uh, let's just say U.S. stock funds, and you don't really even know, you've never been educated that there are international stock funds as well, that there are uh, a number of other asset classes to even consider on the menu of investments. You may not know about them. You'll stick with what's familiar, won't you? Sure. Absolutely. You know, I think we see it a lot too with people that can maybe be overly conservative with their, with their assets that all I've ever done is a CD or a savings account yeah. or what I don't really understand the stock market. And as opposed to, you know, diving in and kind of understanding how that might be beneficial, you know, for you to invest in over the long term, you know, you sort of just stick with those conservative investments and, and you limit your earning power over time. Yeah, there's, there are, um, you know, people that I've talked with in the past and, and uh, that are in retirement now, and it's always just a, a perspective shift because, you know, all their mom or dad and parents did was, uh, you know, no debt and we put the money in the bank and we buy CDs and whatever the interest is, is, is great. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in, uh, in a lot of ways, but, you know, that's what they grew up seeing. And, you know, that's, it, it's a perspective shift from them to think about anything other than doing what mom and dad did. And so, uh, and then even, you know, I think around in, in our area, uh, it, it seems like a lot of people, not, maybe not as much anymore, but it seems like early on, um, you know, people wanted Eastman stock, 
You know, it's like, ah, they, they are, have some connection to Eastman or work there or a relative work there or, you know, and it's just really because it's local and, you know, good or bad, you know, it was, they wanted to buy some Eastman stock, you know, and it's just, okay, that's, that's really familiar to me, you know? Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different ways to look at that familiarity. Switching gears to another emotional bias. There's one called loss aversion bias and loss aversion, uh, it's it's a real force that we have to reckon with on the emotional side of investment management. We none of us want to feel the regret from a bad investment decision. In fact, what's so cool to me is loss aversion bias is probably the single root of behavioral finance overall. Because if we look back at the origins of behavioral finance as a study. Uh, it was first introduced in a concept called prospect theory in 1979 by scholars Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Tversky and Kahneman uh, developed this uh, theory called prospect theory, and one of the core tenets of prospect theory is that the pain of losses feels more than the joy of gains. And that's almost at a two-to-one ratio. In other words, the pain of a loss hurts about twice as much as the joy of a win. And this is where loss aversion comes in. We don't want to feel the pain of loss, especially since it does hurt more than a gain feels good. And uh, this aversion to loss can cause investors to sell winning investments too early can cause people on the other side of the token to hold losing investments too long. Or they could even just assume additional risk in an attempt to make up for potential losses. So loss aversion, again, it's one of the fundamental uh, emotional biases of this entire field of study. And it's one that we do have to pay close attention to. Yeah, and it, it's, uh, I would, you know, for our listeners, I would think about this and, and when you really think about it, it's hard not to remember a, an example, a personal example, not necessarily even having to do with investments or financial planning, but like this is a loss aversion is a real thing, um, you know, across the board. And it definitely, like we said in the beginning, correlates to, you know, financial planning and investing as well. But uh, it's real. And when it happens, you realize it. You know, I think, you know, just outside of investments, I think about like, uh, you know, my kids and, uh, you know, my son, he's real competitive and, uh, you know, we can win a, a game, a soccer game or whatever it is. And yeah, that's fun. And, uh, you know, we high five and talk about it, but we, you know, we've typically probably forgotten it by the next day. And sometimes, you know, you lose a game and it just wear, wears on you, um, you know, for, for longer, it just hurts more than, you know, the, the, the feel good feeling of winning. And that is applicable to, uh, investments as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe one more that comes to mind, uh, you know, pretty easy, quick one is just overconfidence or just, you know, being, uh, you know, overestimating or exaggerating your particular ability uh, to perform, you know, at, at a task. And in this case, you know, picking investments or building a portfolio or, uh, you know, planning. And so, um, you know, I, it's pretty self-explanatory, this one, but you know, you feel like you're better at, at the rest and you can do it um, more efficiently or better than the next person. And so um, it seems like, uh, you know, Scott, you and I kind of talked about this at the same time earlier, but it, it seems like um, 
it, it stems from like early on, it feels like in your, you know, in, investing journey, it's just, I don't know what the odds are, but it's like a lot of times you find some success early and you think, oh man, this is easy. Uh, you know, what's so hard about this? And you become overconfident until, uh, you know, it kind of, it kind of comes back to bite you. And I, you know, I personally, you know, you, you told a personal story, Scott. So, uh, when I really first started working and got out of college and I had a little bit of money in my pocket, uh, you know, I was also caddying at a golf course on the weekends and, you know, I'd hear these conversations from these people that I looked up to and thought that they were successful and, uh, by all worldly means. And they, you know, they would talk about these stocks and I overhear them talk about a stock and I'd never heard of it. I didn't know what they did. Uh, you know, um, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go buy that stock. And so, um, you know, I went to a, a financial advisor that could help me with that. And I said, I want to buy this stock. And he said, why? You know, that's a terrible company. It's a penny stock. It's highly speculative. Do you know anything about it? And I'm like, no, you know, like I've researched it, you know, um, and I just researched it based on what other people said, which is, uh, you know, uh, probably a, a, another bias, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I did well and it doubled and, uh, you know, I thought I was the best at it and uh, the advisor kind of laughed at me. But, uh, you know, again, I thought, you know, equate that to bigger numbers and bigger successes. Like, you know, this is a small thing for a new investor, but uh, I quickly realized that like investing was not that easy and it required uh, a lot more discipline uh, to be successful. And every now and then, you know, for sure, you know, you, you may get lucky and time things right, but you have to continue to repeat that in order to, to have success. And it, 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 you can't, it's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we look at professional fund managers, like they just can't continuously beat their benchmark. If making money was easy, you know, everybody would be wealthy. It, it's an approach of, uh, you know, really understanding what your goals are and being disciplined, you know, and that's probably the key thing. It's just the, the discipline to, um, you know, be aware of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work with stock traders in, in a previous job. And, and I mean, you'd see it a lot where they'd make their first trade and it'd be a huge success. And then it's, you know, they think, hey, I've got this figured out, you know. Um, and, and yeah, to your point, Nick, it's hard to to continue to beat the market like that. You know, you mentioned fund managers consistently. Don't. I think the, the number 75 percent of fund managers yeah. don't be, you know, their benchmark, you know, over a five year time frame. Yeah. And so those are people that are paid to know and understand the markets. And they have all they the data. They so, have people working for them. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, they have way more resources than we do. Right. And they, yeah, that, that the overconfidence will, will bite you every time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, kind of regroup a little bit. Um, you know, let's, we've talked about some of these emotional and cognitive biases. Uh, you know, let's, let's kind of think about, okay, now that we've probably given some examples and people can relate, hopefully, you know, what do we what do we do with this information? You know, and uh, are there any any tips that we might can give our listeners to be thinking about, you know, in the course of their financial journey? Well, sure. Nick, I believe that just being aware that these biases exist and that none of us individuals are immune from them is the first step. Just being aware, even just listening to this podcast episode uh, although this is just meant to be a high-level conversation, just by our listeners tuning in and recalibrating their minds to the fact that, yes, there are psychologically proven biases and, and academically studied phenomenon that are happening inside our brains when we make investment decisions, just being aware of that 
might help us to overcome a lot of the temptation to make faulty judgments. So just further education, further understanding of yourself, uh, further diving into how to keep your own emotions in check, and potentially um, just remembering the behavior gap, the numbers that we looked at earlier on when we actually quantified the true cost of being your own worst enemy uh, from this behavioral finance conversation, staying true to your long-term investment plan, and, and just different uh, strategies like that to really just be aware of yourself and also stay focused on a longer range roadmap, not necessarily the short term. Yeah. So I think we've established that, um, you know, these these biases, you know, are, are not inherently bad in life, you know, but I think what we're finding out is that these, you know, mental processes that serve us very well in almost every other facet of daily living uh, are poorly suited to the world of investing. And so just to kind of, you talked about academics, BB, um, you know, the, the CFP board, which is the Certified Financial Planning Board, which, you know, is, is kind of the... Um, you know, the behemoth in our industry as far as distributing, um, you know, content and research and, uh, you know, designation. And so they have a curriculum as part of their program, and it's a year-long curriculum of classes. And, you know, when I went through that program, uh, this was not really even talked about. You know, that was eight or nine years ago. Uh, and now when you look at the curriculum, and I know this just because of the emails we continue to get and, and what we hear about, but you know, one of the classes as part of that curriculum is the psychology of financial planning and the behavioral finances that go into uh, planning. And so, uh, you know, to give you an idea of the importance they place on that, you know, that's in the same line of thinking uh, and they're, they're putting it in the same category as the importance of tax planning and estate planning and risk management and all these things that we thought are are the things that we need to focus on. This is, you know, in their eyes is is something that we also need to focus on. And so, you know, as a, you know, as a plug for a book we're reading, you know, just in the office, we've got a book, it's called The Behavioral Investor. It's by uh, a guy named uh, Daniel Crosby. Um, and so, you know, here's, so as we, as we kind of close this thing out and we think about tips, right? Um, let's kind of uh, revisit. Uh, humans are wired to act. Uh, markets are, are tend to reward inaction, you know, and I think, um, sometimes doing nothing is the best thing that you can do. And that is goes against all, uh, you know, everybody's intuition. You feel like you've got to do something in order to find success. And sometimes you, you just do nothing for success, uh, which is backwards from everything else in life. Right. And so um, the other thing that this book's talked about is uh, the importance of money seems to diminish, not improve your decision making. So I always go back to, you know, money is emotional. You know, and um, you know, that's, you know, in our line of work, I mean, it's uh, our clients trust us when we're working with them. And it's not like, oh, who's going to give me the best deal or the best quote or whatever it is. Like people are really emotional about their money. And so it's important to them. Um, and I think this is interesting. The anticipation of reward releases a flood of dopamine, uh, which primes us to become sloppy and undisciplined. So uh, success begets failure. And so those are just a few of the, the high points. Um, and, and so let's kind of talk about, as we close this thing out, you know, uh, what are some important tips, you know, maybe Scott, PB that you all have that, uh, can help us overcome some of these biases that 
a lot of times uh, will, you know, derail long-term financial goals or objectives or whatever it may be. Yeah. To me, I think the single most important thing someone can do when you're investing is to define what your goals are, define what your objective is, and then create a plan, you know, around that goal, around that objective to, to achieve it. And I think that helps kind of keep the, the longer term in focus, you know, as, as, you know, what it is that you're actually trying to do that helps you, I think, understand why you own what you own. Um, and, you know, as opposed to just investing just to invest, you know, and when I can remember when I first got started in this business, that felt to me like a lot of people were just investing just to try to grow their money, you know, and that ultimately is why we invest. But, you know, I think to have that goal or that objective that we're trying to achieve sort of keeps that beacon of light out there kind of in the distance that, that you know, okay, regardless of whatever volatility is going on or whatever news is, is happening in the world today, I'm invested this way. And that's the, you know, that's the appropriate way to invest, to achieve this goal that's further out in the future. To, to me, that's the single biggest thing I think someone can do to kind of avoid some of these behavioral biases. Yeah. So define your objective and I would say, write it down, you know, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, and, 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 Things other than financial planning and investing, but you know, in order to you know, that involves goal setting. You hear the statistics of if you write it down, you know, it provides a little bit of accountability, and there's a great greater likelihood of success, right? So I think that's a I think that's an easy thing. You can write write things down. You can have a plan, and you can revisit it in times of question and say, okay, you know, this is this is the plan. I'm going to stick to it. Mm-hmm. And then another third uh, one to consider would be just simply keeping our emotions in check. There's a number of ways to do that. One would be pay less attention to the day in and day out news cycle, especially as it relates to the financial media. Uh, I believe that so many people drive themselves crazy by uh, watching the financial news uh, daily or weekly or dialing into their investment account or retirement account to look at the value daily or weekly. (laughs) Um, Let's keep our emotions in check by not doing that. Um, Not that we want to be an ostrich and stick our head in the sand, but because by looking at our account balances less frequently, we're subjecting ourselves emotionally to less trauma, whether it's good or bad, and less volatility up or down. And uh, we want to be able to return back to that long-range vision. Yeah, And unfortunately, the world we live in, right, is, uh, you know, instant everything. We, we want everything at our fingertips and we want that instant gratification. We want that flood of dopamine if it's, you know, checking social media or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is you can check your investments, uh, you know, uh, at any point during the day or night. Real time basis. Real time. And, you know, I guess that's uh, designed for good and transparency. But, you know, when we start thinking about these biases, uh, specifically the emotional biases, it can definitely work against you if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. I think another way to kind of avoid some of these behavioral biases too is to consider the other side, you know, and I think by that is is whatever it is, you know, we talked about confirmation bias in the past, you know, to, to you know, seek out information, other reliable information that might refute what, you know, what you think or what, you know, you've learned in the past. Um, you know, I think that helps give someone kind of a holistic picture and, and might lead to a more informed decision when you kind of consider all the information and, and both sides of, of an argument. Yeah. Uh, diversification, you know, there's another one that, uh, you know, I know we really uh, preach in what we do with our clients. And, you know, I think that's one of the two free lunches in investing is, is you know, time first and, and diversification. So if you have time to invest, 
uh, and it's appropriate, you know, diversified portfolio, you know, it really is hard to go wrong. And I know, um, you know, we'll talk about um, how to appropriately manage that over time, but, you know, being diversified is, you know, uh, I guess in the sports world, what I, what I think about is, uh, you know, we're not trying to hit home runs every single year by picking the, the perfect right investment that's going to do the best because you risk striking out sometimes. You know, we're trying to hit singles and doubles uh, every year and, uh, you know, we're going to find some success with that. And, you know, we've, we've discussed on our podcast before just like the quilt chart and, you know, it looks at what are the, the, the top performing investments or sectors or whatever it is. And more oftentimes than not, you know, the the best performer one year is not the next best performer. And it's really hard to predict and time those things. But if you just kind of toe the toe that middle line there and stay diversified, um, you know, your your odds of longer term success are are definitely more in your favor. Sure. And the next logical step in that uh, investment management process would be to rebalance your portfolio regularly. So by rebalancing, it, it draws us back in inherently to our long-term plan. We want to rebalance to keep our portfolio back at the targets uh, that we want to achieve our objective. Uh, So the market will change over time. Investment values will change over time. But by rebalancing, we're aligning ourselves back to our long-range plan. And it instills discipline in the investment management process. And so many of the tips that we're talking about revolve around just remaining disciplined, really. Yeah. So what you know, one thing in the market choice here is you know buy low, sell high, right? And I yep. think that's exactly what rebalancing does. You know, yep. so if you have one asset class that's gone up, you know, another one that's not performed as well, you know, what rebalancing does is you sell that investment class that's outperformed to the others. You reinvest it back into the one that's maybe underperformed, which might sound counterintuitive, but again, you're selling high and and buying low, um, and and that goes back to that discipline PB that you just mm-hmm. discussed. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's. It really is, uh, you know, taking the emotion out of it. Like, like you said, like winning and investing involves, you know, buying low and, and selling high. And that, that is a, a, a rule that forces you into it, you know. And so the tendency, I think, sometimes is if you've got some winners, you want to keep riding them. You know, there's the uh, emotional or overconfidence or whatever it is. But by rebalancing, you know, again, what we're trying to do is, you know, put some things into place that, uh, keep us from the faults of these biases. And that's just another, I think that's probably one of the better examples. Sure. Uh, another tip would be to uh, have someone to talk with. This is an incredibly emotional experience, uh, isn't it? And that, that's the nature of this entire conversation is managing money, managing investments can be mentally taxing it's good to have someone to talk with who you trust. Uh, partnering with a financial professional can help. Uh, that's why we do what we do. We do believe in the value of, of having an advisor on your team who you can talk through these investment decisions with, someone to be a voice of reason during stressful times in particular uh, would be uh, of value in our opinion. And uh, that's, that's why we serve uh, our friends and our clients the way that we do is because we believe there's value to having another party involved in these uh, conversations. Yes, sometimes we're our own, uh, our biggest enemy, you know, and so like just having that person uh, in in all areas of life, but specifically with investments, I mean, just having somebody to, uh, you know, kind of keep you on track and speak some truth into your life that hopefully helps provide some peace of mind 
and uh, you know, kind of reinstills like, hey, this is what we were talking about. You know, this is we knew this was going to happen, and here we are. Let's revisit that conversation and not let our emotions get the best of us. Yeah, and I think you know a big part of a financial professional's job today is is exactly that, as you all are discussing. You know, before I think you know. I think when people think of a financial professional or financial advisor, they think of portfolio construction, you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, I think, you know, to have someone that you can kind of bounce ideas off of or that will help keep you on track that, you know, takes maybe an unemotional look at at your situation, um, I think can certainly be helpful for sure. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. This was just a high level introduction, of course, to behavioral finance. But we hope that it spawned your interest in the subject. Please do feel free to let us know if we can be a resource to you. And uh, please stay tuned for another edition of The Benchmark.